You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Attaboy Clarence. Wonderful of you to turn up. I've got L&M. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I've got L&M. My condolences. I've got L&M. And L&M's got everything. Best filter. No filter compares with L&M's pure white miracle tip for quality or effectiveness. Best flavor. The miracle tip draws easy, lets you enjoy all the taste. Best tobaccos. Highest quality tobaccos, low nicotine tobaccos. Best actors in their adverts, too. Because L&M's got everything. This is it, L&M Filters. Well, that was a bit of a half-hearted tune, wasn't it? L&M's got everything. It's the best. Bit pathetic, really. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. More questions are plopping into the question pot. Quite a backlog, I must say, but don't stop sending them. I will get to all of them eventually. The first one this week comes from the delightful Miss Helen Gauvier, who writes... Dearest Adam, oh, I do like being the dearest. I wondered if you had ever considered showcasing the awesome talent that is director and producer Roger Corman. I struggle to find the correct adjectives to define the man. If you are aware of his work, however, I'm sure you can think of a few of your own. I know the period covered by his career may stretch the definition of the golden age of cinema a little. He is, however, certainly part of the secret history of Hollywood. Who can forget the greats such as Swamp Women? and Attack of the Giant Leeches. I've tried, you really can't forget them. I know you have a lot on at the moment, but I would love to hear your interpretation of an intriguing, sometimes bewildering, but always extraordinary career. Yours in agonies of expectation, Helen. P.S. Please. Well, Helen, I I have to say, he is a little bit out of my remit, but never say never. I am a fan of Roger Corman, and one day the lure of talking about him may be too irresistible. So I certainly won't rule it out. I can, however, steer you with great pleasure towards a brand new podcast that I am loving at the moment. The name of the show is Wild Angel, the films of Roger Corman, and it's produced by a stellar chap by the name of Manuel Caneri, who is a besotted fan of Roger Corman's work and who is intending to produce a definitive podcast accompaniment to his work with this series. Manuel really is one of the good guys, and he has been generous enough to cite the secret history of Hollywood as one of his influences in making this show. So if you are after a secret history-style look at Corman's work, then I'm sure that this will tick all of your boxes, Helen. It's called Wild Angels, the Films of Roger Corman. Go forth and enjoy, and jump on the Manuel bandwagon right away, as the show is bound to become a huge hit, and you can say that you are a fan from the beginning. Second question in the question pot this week is from Harry Vance, who asks, Dear Adam, if Suki is a female dog, then how come she has a man's voice? Harry, you do realise that the dog's not actually talking, right? I heard that. Sorry. You tell Harry that I looked at his email and he writes like a girl, he does. How can, how can you tell that from, from looking at an email? I'm very offended, I am. Well, you needn't. Anyone would think I didn't have feelings. I'm as human as anyone else, you know. Well, that's not strictly true, is it? If he wants to check that I'm a girl, then he's welcome to come to our house and look between my legs, he is. Just in case he suddenly turns up here to have a look, I'd better give myself a bit of a clean down there. How can you do that to yourself? Practice. 
Anyway, the last question from the question pot. It tastes like chicken. The last question for this week comes from Elise, who writes, I'm headed to London July 11th to 18th. It'll be my third week-long holiday in the best city in the English-speaking world. For a lover of classic film and radio and such, what tourist tips do you have for me? Especially out-of-the-way joys I might otherwise miss. If you get to this message after my trip begins, never mind. Just give me a Canterbury for putting a question in the pot, eh? Elise, I am uh, so sorry to have seen your question so late, especially as there are tons of movie showings at outdoor cinemas and at Rochester Kino and the BFI. I could have met you for a cup of tea and a chat about old films. Curse my lateness! Oh, well, at the very least, here is the Canterbury you asked for. Canterbury. In fact, I think because I'm so late to your party, you can have a candy Canterbury. Who can take a rainbow, wrap it in a sigh, soak it in the sun and make the strawberry lemon pie? The Canterbury, the Canterbury, Canterbury, Canterbury. And cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. There'll be no New Year for you. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. I had an email from Jenny this week too. Not a question so much as an observation. Jenny writes, Dear Adam, I enjoyed listening to The Dark Mirror and wanted to comment on it. As it started, I tried to guess whether Twin Ruth or Terry would turn out to be guilty. Spoiler alert! I guessed correctly that it was Terry for two reasons. A. Ruth is a biblical name, so surely she must be the virtuous twin. And B. Terry must be the evil twin by definition, because when she is alone, she is ruthless. Oh, dear. Hoping I elicit a groan or two, Jenny B. For heaven's sake, Jenny, how can you be so cruel to us all? Six Hail Marys for that one, but thank you for writing in. Folks, it's wonderful how simple cooking is these days. When I was a girl, my mother used to spend a good many hours making a pot of noodle soup. But now, we have Lipton's noodle soup mix. When you use Lipton's, you just empty the contents of the package into boiling water, and in no time at all... Soup's on. Yeah, I think I prefer the way that Grandma used to make it. And what delicious chickeny tasting soup it is. Ugh, that's not chicken. That's pigeon sweat. Yes, Lipton's has an old-fashioned homemade flavor, and it's brim full of tender golden egg noodles. Of course, sometimes it's hard to get in some stores these days, but there's lots of good things scarce in wartime. Yes, they were probably dropping it on the Germans. So, folks, don't forget to ask for Lipton's noodle soup. So this week, journey with me into mystery. It occurred to me while I was keeping an eye out for radio plays to present that I love fictional movies that are based on real-life mysteries that may themselves be based on fiction. It's a lot more prevalent these days with films like Bigfoot and the Hendersons or Splash or even things like Zodiac and the Black Dahlia and Fire in the Sky and the Mothman Prophecies. Cases that have baffled the world for decades transferred to film to reignite the public's fascination with the mysterious because that little block of text at the beginning that reads based on true events always manages to send a chill up my spine. Well, movies based on real-life mysteries were also being made back in the Golden Age, sometimes with excellent results, and sometimes with completely horrible results. All the way back at the beginning of the 19th century, England seemed to be beset by mysterious supernatural visitors. In 1803, the people of Hammersmith in London were frightened for their lives when an apparition that came to be known as imaginatively the Hammersmith Ghost began to appear during the night attacking passers-by, including an elderly woman and a pregnant lady who both died of shock. So infamous did this ghost become that a gang of armed civilians began to patrol the area at night, and one night they encountered a figure all in white making its way along the street. So terrified were the men that they opened fire, gunning the figure down, only to find that it was in fact a plasterer named Thomas Millwood who'd just finished work for the night. 
The same year, the people of Southampton were haunted by a tall white figure who leapt at them from the shadows and then bounded over houses to make his escape. All these tales of mysterious supernatural entities seem to coalesce in 1837 with the appearance of one of England's most famous creatures of folklore, Spring-Heeled Jack, who terrorized the country throughout the 19th century with sightings lasting up until as late as 1904. He was described as having rough claws and eyes like red balls of fire. Many described him as looking almost like the devil himself, breathing flames of blue and white. And according to reports, he was capable of leaping across houses and over nine-foot walls, which quickly earned him the nickname Spring-Heeled Jack in the press. Dozens of people came forward to claim that they'd been attacked by Spring-Heeled Jack who always snatched at them with his claws, sometimes belching flames into their faces. Their screams would generally bring help, and witnesses often testified to seeing Spring-Heeled Jack bounding away over walls to escape capture. The crazy thing is that as outlandish as these claims may be, there's also a sense of plausibility to them. For starters, he was never reported in two places at once, which was usually how investigators disproved these things. If he was in Wiltshire, how could he have been in Dorset at the same time? Secondly, the sightings of him always seemed to follow a path around the country. For instance, he first made appearances in London, but by the time of his final attacks, he'd made his way up north, and he was only being seen in and around the Liverpool area. All the attacks between these two points all seemed to follow a path that led all the way up the country. Springheel Jack has made many appearances in popular culture since then. In the Hotspur comics during the 70s and 80s, he was actually a superhero of sorts. He pops up in the Assassin's Creed games and the Skullduggery Pleasant books, and he's even provided the inspiration for one of the killers in the TV program Luther. Plus, if you travel back with me now, all the way to 1924 in Germany, he pops up in Paul Lenny's fascinating silent fantasy, Waxworks. <laughs> this is the part where I'd usually play you a clip, but of course, being a silent film, that would be rather difficult. So instead, I will set the scene myself. A penniless poet is attracted to a waxworks at a carnival, where the proprietor has advertised for a writer to create wild backstories about his waxwork figures in order to draw in the audiences. Settling down for the night, the writer begins work first on the story of Harun al-Rashid, played by Emil Yannings, and the story of how he falls for a baker's wife who turns out to be as wily as she is beautiful. Secondly, the twisted tale of Ivan the Terrible, played by Conrad Veidt, who delights in poisoning his enemies and watching them die, until he has the tables turned on him. And lastly, a short vignette in which the wax figure of Spring-Heeled Jack comes to life and chases the poet throughout this carnival of grotesques. Stunning cast here, you have not only Emile Yannings and Conrad Veidt, but William Dieterle as the poet, who would go on to become one of Hollywood's most inventive and talented directors. If you cast your minds back, I told you about him directing The Devil and Daniel Webster, along with so many other classics, such as The Story of Louis Pasteur and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I've never actually seen him act in a film before, and I have to say, he was a remarkably attractive man. He almost looks like an Elvis prototype here. An awesome talent who was unfortunately destroyed by the blacklist in the 50s. Aside from the cast, though, a truly enchanting film. I do love a good portmanteau of stories, and this is very lovingly made. It all feels very physical, it's very light on effects, and the scale of some of the sets and costumes do make you appreciate how much love and attention was lavished on early cinematic projects like this, especially in Europe. 
As for the appearance of Spring-Heeled Jack at the film's climax, he's played here by Werner Krauss, and he seems to be more of an amalgam of Spring-Heeled Jack and Jack the Ripper. He doesn't seem to contain any of the wilder characteristics of Whitney's descriptions, but he is played very menacingly. And it does add a rather horrific tone to the movie, which is often held up as a horror anthology for no other reason than this short segment at the end. I know many of you will be instantly switched off by the fact that this is a silent film, but I have to say, it is one of the better ones, and because of its fantastical nature, one that strangely doesn't seem to have dated as badly as many of the others. Do check out Waxworks from 1924, it's freely available on most streaming sites. On the 17th of July, 1918, the Russian Imperial Romanov family, consisting of Tsar Nicholas, Tsarina Alexandra, and their young children Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei, having been overthrown by the Bolsheviks, were prisoners at the Apatyev house in Yekaterinburg, awaiting exile by the Bolshevik forces. They were awoken by their doctor in the middle of the night and led to the basement after being told that they were to be moved to a safer location. A few moments after arriving, the family were greeted by Commandant Yakov Yurovsky, who held in his hands an official order which he read aloud. Nikolai Alexandrovich, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Before the family could ask a question, or even say their goodbyes to each other, the guns of the men behind the commandant were raised and a hail of bullets cut them down. Those that survived the initial gunfire were bayoneted to death and repeatedly shot at close range. Over the course of the following hours, the commandant and his men systematically destroyed the bodies of the imperial family with acid and shovels, removing and burying them at various locations so as to forever conceal the true nature of their deaths. But something strange happened. Rumours seemed to swirl that the family's youngest daughter, Anastasia, may have escaped after the execution somehow. Just after the night of the executions, guards burst into the cell of Princess Helena Petrovna, the wife of Anastasia's cousin, dragging behind them a teenage girl who they threw to the ground. Angrily, they demanded that Princess Helena take a good look at the girl and tell them whether or not she was the Princess Anastasia. She answered that the girl was most definitely not. The girl was dragged out and no more questions were asked. Tales began to filter throughout Russia that trains and houses were being covertly searched by the secret police for the missing Romanov daughter, who had apparently escaped and was being hidden away by friends to the royals. At a railway station in 1918, eight witnesses saw armed forces descend on a railway carriage and drag out a teenage girl, who managed to escape their grasp and flee. When they were shown photographs of the Princess Anastasia sometime later, all eight witnesses swore that she and the girl were one and the same. These stories were backed up by the claims that when the royal family's grave was finally discovered, two skeletons were missing, that of one of the daughters and of Alexei, their son. On the 27th of February 1920, in the city of Berlin, a young woman attempted suicide by throwing herself from the Bendlerbrucker Bridge. She was quickly rescued by a police sergeant and taken to the Elizabeth Hospital on Lutzostrasse. When she finally regained consciousness some three days later, 
she would identify herself only as Fräulein Unbekannt, which translates to Miss Unknown. The girl spent the next two years in the care of the staff at the Elizabeth Hospital, who all noted that although she spoke fluent German, she did so with a particularly Russian accent. In 1921, Fräulein Unbekannt confessed to a nurse, Thea Malinowski, that she was in fact the daughter of Tsar Nicholas, the Grand Duchess Anastasia, and that she'd escaped from death by pretending to die in the basement on the night of the execution and bribing a sympathetic guard with diamonds that she had hidden in her clothing. Over the next few decades, the girl, now calling herself Anna Tchaikovsky, was in equal measure confirmed as the Grand Duchess and denounced as an imposter by those that had known the Romanov family. At around the same time, a young woman traveling under the name of Eugenia Smetisko from Croatia arrived on American shores and declared herself to be the Grand Duchess, detailing how she'd awoken after regaining consciousness in the cellar at Yekaterinburg and was spirited away to safety by an unidentified woman. Smetisko would go on to publish a book detailing her escape and her early life entitled Anastasia, the autobiography of the Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna of Russia. She lived until 1997, still affirming her claim to be the missing Grand Duchess. Inspired by this ever-deepening mystery surrounding the fate of Anastasia Romanov, the French playwright Marcel Moret created the play Anastasia in 1952, a fictional tale about an amnesiac girl in Paris who's hired by a bunch of conmen to pretend to be the missing Grand Duchess in order to gain access to a £10 million fortune. In 1956, this play was turned into a film directed by Anatole Litvak and starring Ingrid Bergman, Yul Brynner and Helen Hayes. Turn up, hmm? A bookkeeper who nearly ruined you 12 years ago in a forgery affair. Would you recognize his walk today? Would you recognize the smile of a girl you knew 10 years ago? I didn't think of that. You're both fools. You're examining her as if she was the real Anastasia. There is no Anastasia. She was shot to death 10 years ago by a firing squad. We're not looking for her, gentlemen. We're seeking only a reasonable facsimile. Reasonable, yes, but that is unreasonable. Please, let's be constructive. Besides, what will the committee say? Most of them have seen the original. How? At the court ball from a balcony? In church by candlelight, flickering shadows? Yes, you saw her. Many saw her. From a distance or in the newspaper. What about the servants? Some of them are here in exile. They saw her through devoted tears and they will again. All right, in the family. The they... family? If it was the immediate family, I would not try. But they are dead. And do you have faith in the memories of uncles, aunts, cousins? I don't have faith in nothing. They will closet themselves in their bedrooms and secretly peer at yellow photographs, which that woman will resemble. That? Yes, that. Rouge will turn the mouth up a bit. Some powder, a new coiffure, dresses to suggest the other period. Walk, manner, voice, dot along with faces, names, places. <laughs> it would be easier if we could present her to the committee lying in her coffin. Yes, no questions, no answers, no mistakes. <laughs> The film follows the plot of the play quite closely with the amnesiac girl Anna, played by Ingrid Bergman, being equally denounced and confirmed as the missing heir to the Romanov fortune, the whole act being ably coached by the devious General Bunin, played by Yul Brynner. But as Anna becomes accepted more and more by the surviving members of the Romanov family, so too do fragments of her memory return. Could she actually turn out to be the missing Romanov daughter? I was told you would ask me difficult questions and you were not even interested enough to ask me one. No, I am not interested in a demonstration of the tricks taught you by your business associates. But I care nothing about their business. I care nothing about the money. Ah, but you know of the inheritance. I know what they told me. I don't want money. Tell me to whom it should be given and I'll give it. Easily said, but you cannot give it away until you have it and you cannot get it without first obtaining my recognition. It's useless to say that that is not what I want. You're so hard. I remember hearing father say that in a fight you were harder than anyone in the family. I thought at the time that that was a very strong word to use, just because you and my mother were quarreling over a necklace. Some, some emeralds, yes. You wanted to keep them, though they belonged to the imperial treasure. Who told you that? 
Oh, there were many who could have known. You wore them with your last court dress, green and gold velvet and a long train. The photograph was unflattering but accurate. My father took my mother's side in the quarrel. Well, they were all of them against you, but you were stubborn. You kept Figgy's emeralds. How did you learn to call Catherine the Great Figgy? We always called her that. Sometimes we gave the nickname to Maria because she had such an eye for the men, and, and Olga used to say, Stop! I forbid you to bandy those names. I can speak of them if I choose. They are my sisters. Imposter! Well, you don't get much more opulent than Anastasia. This really was Hollywood glamour turned up to 11, especially in the later scenes. The film plays a rather neat bait-and-switch on the audience plot-wise. For the first half, we're left in suspense, wondering if this poor wretched girl from the streets will be able to pull off the con of the century and impersonate the missing Grand Duchess. And yet, through a series of extremely subtle hints and a marvellous slow drip feed of clues, we spend the second half of the movie firmly in the belief that, hang on a minute, this girl could actually be the missing Anastasia. The cast are all excellent, and to the film's credit, it goes heavily on European actors, so we do get a very authentic gallery of actors. Helen Hayes as the Dowager Empress is particularly brilliant and delivers a heart-wrenching final line in the film. Really wonderful stuff. Yul Brynner is equally as magnetic as the dashing conman, but Ingrid Bergman absolutely owns the film from beginning to end. Starting as this crushed, lost soul on the scrap heap of Paris, and ending as a majestic enigma. This was her first role in Hollywood for many years, following her blacklisting for her affair with Roberto Rossellini. She'd essentially been shunned by Hollywood, and marketed by conservatives across America as the most evil harlot on the planet. Well, she held her head high and delivered a performance for the ages here. And when awards season came, she rightfully left the Academy Awards with the Oscar for Best Actress. Her second after 1944's Gaslight. But it definitely meant more this time around, because it meant that Academy voters had greenlit her path back to Hollywood. Within one evening, she'd been firmly accepted back, not only into American movies, but into American society. It was a remarkable achievement, especially as just a few years previously, she'd been denounced in the Senate as a woman of loose morals. The film itself, as I say, is extremely entertaining and helped to perpetuate the missing Anastasia legend for decades to come. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, the mystery was finally laid to rest in 2007, when the partial remains of two skeletons were discovered near a bonfire site in Yekaterinburg. Forensics soon established that the DNA belonged to the Romanovs, and the mystery of Anastasia and Alexei's absence from the family grave was finally explained. It transpired that on the night of the execution, the firing squad's bullets had ricocheted off the corset of Anastasia due to the fact that she'd sewn into the lining a large quantity of the family's jewels. When the soldiers discovered that she was still alive, they had murdered her with their bayonets. To prevent identification should the family grave be discovered, they had removed Anastasia and Alexei's bodies from the group and buried them separately, so that there wouldn't be the correct number of bodies in any one grave. As for the sightings of Anastasia that followed and the secret police searches for the apparently escaped Grand Duchess, it seems that some of these were staged in order to appease the German government, who'd recently signed a treaty with the new Russian government, and who'd sent several communications demanding that the Romanov princesses be treated well. It was therefore vital that the outside world should believe, however flimsily, that at least one of the Romanov daughters was still out there. And so, onto a real-life mystery that needs no prior explanation, surely. The Loch Ness Monster has fascinated the world forever. Does the Scottish Loch 
contain a survivor from prehistoric times? Does it actually contain a dying, dying, dying dinosaur? People have been reporting sightings of the Loch Ness Monster since the year 565 AD, when Saint Columba apparently stopped a water beast by making the sign of the cross at the creature as it swam towards him and commanded it to leave, which it duly did. Thank goodness the creature had ears and could understand English. Anyway, sightings dribbled on throughout the centuries, but in 1933, George Spicer and his wife were driving along the road running alongside the log when they saw, and I quote, a most extraordinary form of animal with a large body and a neck resembling an elephant's trunk, which slithered across the road in front of their car. The Spicers weren't the only motorists to almost write their vehicles off on the monster, though, because just a month later, a motorcyclist by the name of Arthur Grant also had to slam on the brakes to let a huge limbless creature with a long neck cross the road in front of his bike and slither into the lock. It wasn't long before people were camping out at the lock in order to photograph the beast, and in 1934, perhaps the most infamous image of the apparent monster was taken by a gynecologist called Robert Wilson, who provided the world with what has come to be known as the surgeon's photograph, that picture of a long neck protruding from the surface of the water. Seizing on the newfound Nessie hysteria that had swept the world, Charles Bennett, yes, that Charles Bennett, the man who co-wrote those incredible British films with Alfred Hitchcock, decided to write a film called The Secret of the Lock. My expectations were high. It's co-written by Charles Bennett and edited by David Lean. But that is where the quality stops, by gad, for if you do surrender 78 minutes of your life to it, you will be sorely, sorely disappointed, let me tell you. This is the story of Professor Heggie, who is determined to prove the existence of the Loch Ness Monster, but who is ridiculed by the scientific community for doing so. This creature you talk of sounds utterly fantastic. But the hippopotamus must have sounded fantastic before its existence was proved. The hippopotamus amphibious is a... The hippopotamus is a fact, proven by science. Which came first, science or the hippopotamus? Professor Heggie, this is a conference room in a museum of science. Not a music hall. I entirely agree with Professor Fothergill. Every one of us here present has some pretensions to being considered above the level of the mentally deficient. What you've been telling us sounds like one of Grimm's very grim fairy tales. Gentlemen, do you suppose that I haven't weighed my conclusions? I agree with Professor Fothergill, uh, but no doubt there is some logical explanation of this um, uh, fact. Ah, then if it is a fact, it's time to wake up to it. Time to wake up. Step forward, ace London reporter Jimmy Anderson, who journeys to Scotland to help the professor, falls in love with the professor's daughter, and on one fateful night on the water, comes face to face with old Nessie herself. Firstly, for a film set in Scotland, there are hardly any Scottish people in this thing. They all sound like they're from Knightsbridge. Even the fishermen sound like BBC announcers. Secondly, when people do talk, they sound like this drunken old fool. They think we're superstitious. Well, maybe we are. But they can never know the lock as we know it. On dark winter nights, when the mist hangs over it as it does now, we've known death come in many ways by that dark stretch of water and whose bodies have never been found again. That's not superstition. That's hard fact. I do like the bit at the beginning with the scientists, though. It's the most polite slanging match that I've ever heard. Your monster, sir, is a floating log of wood. It is not a log of wood. A lump of peat, then. It is not peat. Then perhaps you'll tell us what it is. Gentlemen, to the best of my knowledge and belief, the monster which is haunting the waters of Loch Ness is nothing more or less than a reptilian survival of prehistoric ages. A giant dinosaur, Diplodocus. A what? A dying, dying, dying dinosaur, sir. You know, I think it's worth repeating that remarkable piece of acting. A dying, dying, dying dinosaur, sir. A dying, dying, dying dinosaur, sir. A dying, dying, dying dinosaur, sir. Seriously, though, it, it's awful. 
Awful script, awful acting, awful directing, awful effects, awful monster. Awful, awful, awful film. Took me six attempts to get through it. Bloody awful. The problem is that despite its awfulness, it's strangely compelling because they're all trying so bloody hard, except for old McWaffley drunk trousers. On dark winter nights, when the mist hangs over it as it does now, we've known death come in many ways to the honest folk who've been claimed by that dark stretch of water. He's not trying very hard. To be sober! Like, like, like I say though, because of little moments like this... A dying, dying, dying dinosaur, sir! You do find yourself befuddled by its awfulness, and therefore it becomes this hideously watchable car crash on screen. You, you want to stop watching it, but you cannot possibly tear yourself away in case it gets more awful. You just have to see if it gets more awful. It does. Charles Bennett himself described the film as terrible but amusing. I literally cannot review it better than that myself. Well, on to another mystery. In December of 1872, the merchant vessel the Marie Celeste was found adrift off the Azores. When a crew went aboard to investigate, they found the ship completely deserted. The sails were set, ropes were hanging over the sides, provisions were plentiful. But most of the ship's papers were missing, as were many of the captain's navigational tools. Crucially, there were no signs of violence or a struggle. The last entry in the ship's log had been made nine days before, recording the ship's position at 400 miles away from where she'd been found. The crew had simply vanished, and to this day, no explanation has ever been definitely accepted as to what became of the crew of the Marie Celeste. Theories have ranged from freak weather to giant squids. One theory suggests that the crew gathered on a makeshift platform to watch a swimming contest between two crew members in the sea. The platform collapsed under the weight and the entire crew were eaten by sharks. Or perhaps this could be the solution. In 1953, the radio series Suspense offered a solution to the Mary Celeste mystery that doesn't actually sound that implausible to me. Cross the gangplank with me now and take a listen. See what you think as we all set sail on a doomed voyage of drama and suspense with their curious little tale, The Mystery of the Marie Celeste. See you afterwards, if you're still here. Tonight... Autolite tells of one of the great mysteries of the sea as we recreate the mystery of the Marie Celeste, our star, Mr. Van Heflin. Hello, Harlow. Uh, goodbye, Hap. Goodbye? Sure, this is our last show till fall, Hap. Last chance to tell folks about switching to those inspiring, incomparable, and inevitable Autolite spark plugs. The spark plugs that are ignition engineered for the finest performance money can buy. What are you going to do this summer, Harlow? Keep an eye out for exasperated drivers with poorly performing cars, Hap. And then I'll say visit your Autolite spark plug dealer for a brisk brace of Autolite spark plugs, like the amazing Autolite resistor spark plugs. The double life spark plugs that make riding as smooth as a summer breeze. So call Western Union by number and ask for our friend, Operator 25. Yes, sir. Operator 25 will tell you the location of your nearest Autolite spark plug dealer. The man with ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs, both standard and resistor type. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite presents The Mystery of the Marie Celeste. Starring Mr. Van Heflin, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. On December 9th, 1872, the American brigantine Marie Celeste was discovered adrift and derelict close off the coast of North Africa. She had sustained some storm damage, but she was still an able ship. Her sails were set, her cargo was intact, conditions in her cabins and forecastle seemed normal. There was no evidence of violence. Yet, not a sign was found of the crew that had manned her. 
Officers, men, and the captain's wife had vanished, and no acceptable explanation of their disappearance has ever been advanced. But perhaps this is that story. It would start in New York City's Harbor District on the night of November 7th, 1872, the eve of the Marie Celeste departure from that same harbor. she was with, and then he killed the girl's mother. He's a maniac that we've got to get. I'll look down this way. I'll help if I can. All right. Four men from the force will be here shortly. I didn't remember killing her mother. Grace I killed because I couldn't help her. The man, because he came after me when Grace was down, but I never, never meant to kill her mother. When I heard that I had, I wondered if the officer was right and that I was insane. There wasn't time to think of it then. Only time to think of getting away. And through that night, I searched for a ship that was leaving soon. One that was badly guarded so I could slip aboard. When I found her, she was the Marie Celeste. And a drunken deck watch stayed in his sleep until I was hidden in the number two hole. There I passed two days in a dream. Neither fully awake nor asleep, but always thinking of the horror I'd done. And I knew that escape was wrong. That I could never be sane until I cleared my soul out. On the third morning, I proceed to make my presence aboard known so that I can go to the captain and tell him of my crime and take the consequences I so richly deserve. I climb to the deck and am immediately seen by a crewman. Hey, Lindley, look! Who's there? You better find out. Who are you, mister, and what are you doing aboard? My name is Sam Newcomb, and, uh, I, uh... I want to talk to your captain. You'll talk to him right enough, whether you want to or not. How'd you get aboard? You'll be lucky if you didn't stand the 12 to 4 watch your last night in port, because that's... that's uh, when it was. You're uppity for a stowaway, aren't you? You're no better than a thief. Well, I admit that. Look, I, I, I want no trouble with you. Please take me to your captain. I'll talk to him and no one else. You take him, Bull. I'd better stay forward. Yeah. Come on, you can... If you're going to make the rest of the trip with us, you better drop your airs or there'll be trouble. I don't have any airs. And I don't think you'll be troubled with my company. Oh? You mean you don't think you'll quarter with the crew? No. You expect to be with the officers, like an honored guest. No. Where, then? Well, I... I don't know. Yeah, you act like you're daft. Don't say that! I'll... I'll... You'll what? Uh, nothing. I'm sorry, I... I, I want to talk to your captain. You'll watch what you do and say, or you'll be over the side. Here. Yes, come. Watch your language. The skipper's wife is in the next cabin aft. His wife? Well, ah, who's this? He just came out of number two hole, sir. His name is Sam Newcomb. Got aboard on the 12 to 4 watch hour last night in. Hubbard's watch. He'll answer for it. Well, Newcomb, what do you have to say for yourself? I'd, uh, like it if, if I could talk to you alone, sir. Ah, that's all, Bull. Tell Hubbard I'll want to see him as soon as he's off watch. Yes, sir. Now, you realize, Newcomb, that you've committed a crime by boarding this ship without permission. 
And probably without passport or any other papers, I suppose. I know, sir. But uh, when I tell you why... I, I, I'm not a bad man, sir. N nothing like this has ever happened before, but something drove me. I, 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 I didn't know what I was doing. Another one who's always wanted to go to sea, I suppose. No, uh, no, sir. I've, I've been sailing for ten years. I'm an able hand. I, uh, I came aboard because, uh, well, I, I had to get away. You were in trouble? Yes, sir. I, uh, I, I don't think it was my fault, but I am wrong. What kind of trouble? Well, there was a girl, sir, who I was in love with. And, uh, well, I don't know what came over me, but... Yes? What'd you do to her? I found her with another man, and uh, I, uh, I, I just had to get away, sir. Uh, a lovesick young calf, eh? Well, that doesn't condone... Uh, ben. Oh, yes, my dear. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I heard you talking. Uh, yes, uh, uh... This is Mr. Newcomb. He came aboard illegally the night before we left. Well, where has he been? It's three days. In number two hole, ma'am. Have you had food and water? No, ma'am. Well, why haven't you come to us before this? I, uh... I don't know, ma'am. He was going to tell me why he came aboard. I don't suppose it's important to anyone but me, but... Uh, I felt that I had to get away and, uh... It was a girl. I almost guessed that. A broken heart? I, I thought it was. I, I know it sounds silly, but to me it seemed awfully serious. And I, I couldn't think of another way to leave as quickly as I wanted to. <coughs> well, there's no other way I can allow an affair of the heart to influence what I must do in this case. Now, by reputation, I'm a fair and lean man. I'm a seaman, sir. I could work my way. I'm not so sure that you deserve the chance. Whatever you say, sir. Ben. Oh, please, Grace. Great. Ah, what's the matter with you? Nothing, sir. My name. Grace is the name of the girl. Yes, ma'am. It was learning that the captain's wife was aboard that made me change my mind about telling him the truth. When I talked to him, especially after his wife came in, everything was, was turned about. It was as though I was the captain and the stowaway was someone else. It was as though my wife, my Grace, had come in from the next cabin and together we talked to this stowaway. And uh, we felt sorry for him and we wanted to be kind to him. The wife can't be more than three or four years older than I. And I feel close to her right away. I, I think that uh, even if she doesn't know what I've done, she understands me. It's a good feeling to have one friend on the ship. Through her pleas, I'm sure I, I'm not restrained and instead sent to take my place with the crew in their forecastle. There I find no friends. Well, what are you doing here? Couldn't you find a better place to quarter? I was told where to come. Hey, Hubbard. Ah? Uh, Wake up. Here's the one who came aboard during your watch. Oh? Uh, what you figure you'll be fine? A week's pay? Yeah, that's right. Newcomer, huh? Yes. Why'd you come aboard? Why, uh... I wanted to get away from New York. Man's got to have a better reason than that. You running away from the police? No. What then? Well, it wouldn't interest you. It's, it's not important. It's important to me. And I want you to know how I feel about it. Oh. Are you going to get up? No. I don't want any trouble with you. You don't want no trouble. You caused me trouble, haven't you? I'll be called up in front of the captain because of you. Well, that's done. There's no... No way I can change it. We've got three weeks before we make Naples. You'll pay for it. I'll see to that. Through the following days, I knew no peace. There were four deckhands and a first officer. And although I had reason to fight because of the way they beat me and used me, I didn't. I was afraid of my own violence now that I'd killed. 
The one named Hubbard, he was the worst. His eyes were always on me. And I, I wondered why. There was a night when I woke to find him bending over my bunk. He was smiling. And from that moment on, even in sleep, I felt him watching me. On another night, I'm on deck. I'm crossing from the port to starboard. And when I pass under the mainyard, a marlin spike falls from aloft and sticks in the planks beside me, narrowly missing my head. I look up to see Hubbard smiling down at me from the rigging. I try to avoid him, but he drops to the deck to face me. I dropped my spike. Yes, I know you did. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. You take more than any man I've ever known, Newcomb. Well, I'm not proud of that. Well, why do you keep after him? Why don't you leave me alone? Because I'm a curious man. I want to know truly why you're on this ship. Your story the captain about trouble with some woman just doesn't set right. Well, no, that's the truth. Not all of it. Why do you say that? Anybody ever tell you you talk in your sleep? is bringing you Mr. Van Heflin in The Mystery of the Marie Celeste. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Well, Harlow, this is it. It sure is, Hap, the Autolite resistor spark plug. The double life spark plug that's the greatest advance in spark plug design for automotive use in the past 25 years. Well, I didn't re mean the resistor spark plug, Harlow. I meant this is our last meeting till fall. Too bad. Too bad, three bad, no matter how many spark plugs are bad. Get them all replaced with a set of sensational Autolite resistor spark plugs. The spark plugs that last twice as long and give smoother engine performance and really quick starts. And the Autolite resistor spark plug is only one of a complete line of Autolite spark plugs, ignition engineered for every use. Is Operator 25 going on vacation too, Harlow? No, sir, Hap. She'll be standing by to tell folks the location of their nearest Autolite spark plug dealer. Just call Western Union by number and ask for Operator 25. And remember, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Van Heflin in Elliot Lewis's production of The Mystery of the Marie Celeste. A true report, well calculated to keep you in suspense. I'd never been told that I talked in my sleep until the one named Hubbard said I did. He may have been lying, but I couldn't chance that. Therefore, I carefully abstained from regular sleeping habits, allowing myself short naps only when I knew that Hubbard was at the helm or some other ship's business that he couldn't leave. The horror of what I had done became a secret that pressed against my head, wanting escape. But I held it in, and I took the abuse of the men aboard... The only kindness and relaxation I find are during the moments when I chance to meet the captain's wife. Off watch one night, when it's not safe to sleep, I'm alone taking a cup of tea in the galley. When she comes in... Oh, Mrs. Briggs. Why, Mr. Newcomb, I've been thinking of you. I haven't seen you. Well, you look ill. Is something wrong? No, no, nothing, no. My, my uh, sleep hasn't been so good. And your cheek is bruised. What happened? Oh, it's nothing serious. Uh, just some trouble with the other hands. Have you told the captain? No, no, ma'am. Why not? I shall. No, please, uh, uh, please don't. I've caused enough trouble. I wouldn't want there to be any more. May I have some tea, Mr. Newcomb? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you. I think you're a very kind man, Mr. Newcomb. You do? Yes. To protect the other hands, for one thing. They're a rough lot, I know. No worse than most men, ma'am. 
You're very unhappy, aren't you? This girl, Grace, I know this is hard for you to understand, but really, no one girl is worth ruining your life for. Not even losing sleep over. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I wish you'd stop calling me ma'am. Perhaps if you did, you could talk to me about this girl. I think it'd do you good, don't you? Well, I don't know. Tell me about her. I'm sure she's quite beautiful. Well, I thought so. And you plan to be married? Yes. But she changed her mind? She was never sure. Uh, she was ambitious for me. That's natural. And I, I disappointed her like I did my family, my, my mother, everybody. I, I'm always thinking that I'm doing my best, but I always disappoint people. What did she want you to be, this girl? A ship's master, like your husband. We dreamed of the day when she could sail with me, like, like you do on this ship. Well, you mustn't lose faith in yourself. It took my husband years to get his papers. There are no years for me anymore. She wouldn't wait? No. No, she, she wouldn't wait. You must have waited, but, but she wouldn't. Tell me. It'll be good for She you. promised to wait, but she didn't. She never understood that it took time. She was ambitious, and she pushed me for my officer's papers, and, and I failed. My family pushed me, too, but when I wasn't ready, they made me fail. And I went away, a six-month trip to South America. I, I, I tried to jump overboard, and they stopped me, and then I got back and found her married to a ship's captain. Her mother was there, laughing at me. Well, I, I tried to tell them that I was happy about it. Then Grace smiled at me, and something happened. Mr. Newcomb. I was only going to kill her. I, I didn't even know that the others were there. And I hit her, and, and she went down, and then this man came after me, and I hit him, too. Well, wh when you get mixed up like that... You don't know wh what you're doing. And time means nothing, like, like everything else. Mr. Newcomb... Then I... her mother. Well, and I, I don't remember that. But she's dead, too, and they blame me. Maybe I did. Mrs. Briggs, wh where are you going? Stay away from me. No, 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 you've been nice to me. Why did it have to be you that I told everything? Oh! No, no, I like you. Why did it have to be you? Oh, no! No! No, 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 I don't want to kill you. I, I never wanted to kill anybody. No, no, I won't hurt you. You, you. You've been nice to me. Stay away from me. No, 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 I, I won't touch you. But, but you, you've got to promise that you won't tell. I, I don't know why I said those things. They're, they're not true. See, I get mixed up. I dream things, and then they seem real after I wake up. That's why I, I'm such a liar. I always lie. That's, there's nothing that I told you was the truth. Do, do you believe that? Yes. And, and you, you, you won't uh, tell anybody what I said. I huh? won't tell anyone. No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm. Now, no, uh, come, Mrs. Briggs, and finish your tea. Come on, we'll talk. We'll talk about something else. No, I've got to go to my cabin. Mrs. Briggs, don't, don't tell. I knew she would tell. So I hid. I, I went back to the number two hole where I'd felt safe before. They found me there. I don't know how much time passed. I see their lantern as they come closer. The truth is out. There's no place for me to go. So I, I stand up and wait. Captain. Captain, I hear him, I think. Yes, Albert. Keep your pistol ready. You have to be careful. Yes, sir. There he is, sir. Come out of there, Newcomb. Keep your lantern down, Hubbard. Keep us under the light. He's dangerous. No, I won't. I won't cause any trouble, sir. Get him out of there. I won't cause any trouble. It's all right, sir. He's down. A dirty little scum. Lock him up. I'm not sure how many days passed, but I found comfort in being locked up because I could sleep without the fear of Hubbard leaning over me, listening for what I might say. Then there was one night when shouting on deck woke me up. I couldn't hear the words being in the middle of the ship. Soon the shouting stopped and there was silence. It was a new silence that I studied for a long time. 
I heard no footsteps on the deck. I heard no voices. I heard no creaking timbers. It was a dead ship. I wait for the one daily meal that they allow me. And no one comes. And then I shout, let me out! Let me out of here! Somebody come and let me out! If one were insane, he'd surely break at a moment like that. I was locked up and alone on a ship that was held motionless as if gripped by some great hand. But I didn't break. I dismantled my bunk and from the wood fashioned a ram with which I attacked the door. The task of freeing myself consumed most of the day. And such was my concentration that I didn't realize the exact moment that the ship began moving as if a great hand had released its grip and set her free. And I was free. I come out on deck to find a cloudless sky and empty sea horizons all around, as if I'm alone in the world, the wheel spinning idly with no one to attend it. I lash it after fitting a new course to the sails she's wearing. The whole ship is mine. I am master and crew. I found peace and well-being, as if I've been absolved of any wrongs I ever did. Because what, if not Providence, held the ship that night and sent the others to certain death in the endless sea? What, if not kind Providence, decided that I alone would survive? The meek and the humble shall inherit the earth. This narrative I swear to be true. And on the second day of December, the year of our Lord, 1872, I hereby sign it and seal it in a bottle to be delivered to the ocean's currents in the hope that someday it'll drift back to the hated world from which I am forever parted. According to scientific theory, a strange phenomenon takes place now and again off the coast of Africa near where the Marie Celeste was found. Great rivers of sand are swept out from the coastal deserts. When certain conditions prevail, this sand is concentrated by the ocean's currents. Millions of tons are massed until an island is born, lives briefly, and then is swept away by a shift in the currents that created it. One such island formed under a small ship during World War II, held it for a number of hours, then released it, much in the same manner that Sam Newcomb's Providence acted. A like occurrence could have caused the abandonment of the Marie Celeste, but no one knows. According to some reports, Sam Newcomb's signed confession did drift ashore many years later. If that is true, perhaps another of the many mysteries surrounding the Marie Celeste has been solved. That mystery was a short length of line that reportedly was found secured to the stern of the ship, close up under the transom where someone would hide. Attached to this line was a man's leather belt that had parted in the middle. Could Sam Newcomb have hidden there when the salvage crew was put aboard to sail the ship to Gibraltar? Could he have hung suspended there against the weakening belt until it parted? and let him sink silently into the sea. And that was suspense and the mystery of the Marie Celeste. What do you think? Sandbanks that rose up and then disappeared? Mm, yeah, why not? Right then, on to a competition for you all. I have not just one prize to give away this week, but two. 
In keeping with this week's theme, I will be sending to one lucky winner a brand new DVD copy of Anastasia, starring Ingrid Bergman, as well as a copy of Spring-Heeled Jack, The Terror of London, which was a penny dreadful first printed in 1878 and which has been reprinted in paperback, and I have to say, rather a fun little read. So to win that pair of prizes, all you have to do is go to the website at www.attaboyclarence.com and solve a mystery. Somewhere on the website, on one of the pages somewhere, is an entry form hidden away in a shadowy corner. All you have to do is find that entry form, fill in your name and email address and click the enter button and you'll be in the draw. You'll know it when you see it. I'll draw a winner from amongst the folks that managed to find it on the next Attaboy Clarence, so hurry along and start searching. In case you can't remember the website name, I'll drop a link in the show notes. Happy hunting. Okay, that is it from me. Thank you for tuning in. I shall be with you again in a fortnight. Patrons, I will be with you next week. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.